Welcome to Intimacy Play, a podcast by Pleasy Play. We host open discussions with world-leading experts on couples, sex, and intimacy, so you can build a more exciting, fun, and intimate relationship. I'm your host, Michaela Silva. So, hi everyone. I hope you're having a great day. Today, we're going to talk to Stu Nugent. He's a creative content expert for sexual wellness brands, but I'm sure that you do a lot more than this. Can you tell us exactly what you do? I can. Hello there. Um, my role uh, involves very close attention and development of the communications uh, for sexual health and wellness products. Uh, in particular, sex toys. I've been in the industry for a very, very long time now, 16 years. Um, and through that time, I've worked with most of the major brands in sexual wellness or their competitors. So <laughs> I see, uh, I've seen a, a large scope of time in the industry from a number of different perspectives. And how did you get into that industry, into the pleasure industry? So how did you first get your foot into the door? And um, would you give anyone advice to start their career in this industry? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I always feel like no one does a job like mine by accident. You know, you don't, you don't fall into writing about sex really well by accident. You know, I'm one of the very few people that you'll encounter who chose what they wanted to do from a very early age. I was in the middle of my teens when I decided that the adult industry was the, the right one for me, the one that aligned and challenged the most and was the most interesting and kind of electrifying and, and fascinating. So I made that decision and then went to university to study some, some topics that would give me a background in the wider field of communications. So I, I don't have a marketing degree. I, my academic background is linguistics and literature. So I wanted to study how people communicated with each other and then use that and to communicate really well, I hope at least, um, about sex and sexuality. So while I was studying, I was actually paying my bills and paying my student loan off um, by doing freelance jobs in the adult industry. Do you remember phone sex lines? Like mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, back in the early day, in back in the days, I used to write those scripts that would then be recorded by disinterested middle-aged women from home between cigarettes, like reading scripts that I'd written to to men in phone boxes. I'm very proud of it. I took oh, it very so serious. you weren't talking; you were writing the script. Yeah, that's right. Ah, oh, but you have such a nice voice. You could be on the other line too. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very flattering. <laughs> very good. That's awesome. So that's how you started. So it was uh, writing a script for uh, phone sex. Yeah, more or less. That's that was my first paid work. But I always found that there was a freedom of expression permitted by writing online, particularly that couldn't manifest itself in any other way. I found that writing and um, talking for, in a very considered way about sex and sexuality and sexual health and wellness was really, really rewarding. And over time, quite well, relatively quickly, um, because I was taking it quite seriously, opportunities presented themselves. So me and the industry kind of met each other. You know? <laughs> I get it, for sure. And do you still like it? I love it every single day. Yeah, I wake up excited every single day. No pun intended, right? <laughs> Puns always intended. Um, they say that you shouldn't monetize your hobbies because you lose your love for them after a while. And a lot of people tell me that's true. For me, it's been exactly the opposite. The longer I do it, 
the more interesting and the more fascinating, and the more complex and rewarding it gets. So yeah, every day is different. Interesting. And also, you never run you never run out of stuff to say about sex. You know. No, and it's always a good joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you've worked a lot of brands, and you know you can you can for sure name them. We're very happy to hear about the brands that you like that you enjoyed working. And can you tell us a little bit about this industry? So about these brands, have you seen a change in the industry over the last years? Yeah, that's a great question. The change has been profound um, and fast as well. In the last maybe 10 or 15 years or so, there has been like a coming of age, like a renaissance of the pleasure industry and the wellness industry, the intimate wellness industry. It's really starting increasingly fast to be taken very seriously. And a lot of us who've been in the industry for a long time have kind of been waiting for this moment, like this kind of, this beginning of a chain reaction in which the audience for the products are really well-educated, very literate, very knowledgeable. And the people uh, working in the industry are equally dripping with experience and, and desperate to tell these kind of interesting stories to the customer. So the relationship, I think the biggest change uh, over the last 10 years or so has been the relationship of brands to the customer. Because in the old days, I say old days, I'm, I'm talking about like pre, pre-2000, I guess, early 2000s, sex in the city kind of threshold. Um, the pleasure industry was dominated by dimly lit back alleys in Soho. You imagine like umbrellas in the dark and rain against the lampposts and that kind of thing and neon yeah. signs uh, full of promise. But the reality of it was that the products did not respect the customer and the industry did not respect the customer. And I think that's what's changed most is that the, the customer themselves has grown in confidence, grown in knowledge and understanding. And the industry has had to really work, really work hard to keep up. That's exciting. Oh, for sure. So so do you think that not only society has evolved in the sense of accepting sexual wellness and wanting more and expecting more, but also that the consumers are also expecting more from the brands? I think so. Yeah, and they're not, they're not afraid to challenge brands who are not performing to the standard that, that they think they should be. That's also really exciting because it means that the brands that have traditionally dominated the industry, they tend to be very large producers of very high volume products where quality isn't necessarily the highest concern. The highest concern is volume. So those longstanding old brands are now themselves having to deal with the fact that the customer is just is ready. The customer is ready to have these conversations and able to do it publicly. So what is the customer looking for? There are two ways, I think, to consider this. One is a demographic approach. Um, and I know, you, as uh, you just mentioned before we started, you're a marketer, so I'll, I'll try to keep this short because I know that I'm... Uh, <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Outside. Okay, good. <laughs> There's a demographic approach to this in which we categorize customers by age group by um, perhaps sexuality and by gender, maybe by, uh, by identity, by income, those kinds of things. And for a long time, that was really the only way to do it. That was the only way to understand the customer and from that infer what a customer might want. 
Now, though, we have a much better understanding. We use now psychographics instead of demographics, which means that instead of just having numbers, age groups, um, gender identities, as if you can categorize people easily into them, of course you can't. Um, now we have the theory that underpins all of that work. So now, instead of saying we expect this customer to be a straight cisgendered woman, 26 years old, uh, high-paying job, um, we don't need that information. We need to know. We, now we know that that person is buying a sex toy potentially to uh, augment, to make the sex that she's having better as an addition to sex rather than a substitute for it, which was the old way of looking at it. The the point is that. It's hard to know exactly why a person comes to us. It comes to us in the industry to buy a sex toy. But the ultimate goal surely must be fulfillment, satisfaction, pleasure. And that's kind of universal. You know, that, that defies things like demographics. So what you're saying is that not only the brands are more aware that their products are being sold to increase pleasure and intimacy more than a substitute of sex uh, or masturbation or, or, or whatever, um, but also that the clients are looking in that same way. So they're looking for a brand that can fulfill their uh, needs in terms of increasing their pleasure. I think that was a bit complicated. but I, I think so, yeah. I think that's right. Uh, I think um, another way to phrase it would be that Traditionally, people have uh, shopped for sex toys according to what that sex toy can offer them separately from their everyday life. Now, we understand that the customer is shopping as much more part of a normal lifestyle, as much more um, something to work in and to fold into a normal daily routine rather than something that they have their daily life plus sex toys on the side. Now, that sex toy is as central to their lifestyle as... Well, I wouldn't say a smartphone, but you know, some some incredibly useful daily tool. You know. Very well phrased. I can see why you're a writer and I'm not. <laughs> so for sure, I, I agree with that vision. But I also want to talk to you about sustainability. So as somebody that's in the industry, so we do not sell sex toys, but we do sell intimacy in, in a box, let's call it. And we do help couples improve their intimacy. We see that people are more and more aware of the packaging that it comes, the products, and they want to make sure that it's the greenest it can be. But we have a very big job with this because that is something that we consider very important when we're selecting the products that we send to our clients. But quality first is number one, and then that would be maybe like number two. Um, and it's very hard. Do you, do you feel that the brands are making that shift into being greener and more sustainable? Slowly, yes. Uh, I think you're right in your, your assertion that quality takes precedence over sustainability. I think that that has long been the case. But I also think that implies that the two things are in competition with each other, which isn't the case. I don't think that quality and social responsibility are in conflict with each other. At the moment, the, the wellness industry, specifically my industry, the pleasure industry, is valued at something like $25 billion a year. Per, that's pre-pandemic. So it's probably something like $30 billion right now. That's a huge amount. That is bigger than the entire global live music industry. So if you consider all of the rock concerts, all of the, you know, the entire K-pop industry, all of that is still smaller than 
the sex toy industry or the pleasure industry. With that new kind of size, with that growth, I think it's important now, now that we're being taken seriously for the first time, we also need to take our commitment seriously. We need to understand the impact of these products that we're, that we're making. It's a little bit hard to describe exactly what that means in real terms. Perhaps I can explain it like this. Um, with, at the risk of bombarding the statistics, uh, <laughs> we, we know that for, for every $1 million of revenue that the pleasure industry makes, they use 40 tons of plastic, for example. Uh, that means with, a, with an industry valued at $25 billion, that's 108,000 tons of plastic every year. We also know due to the very highly intimate and personal nature of the products, people aren't recycling. You know, they're not, you, you don't get secondhand sex toys. They all, all of them go straight back into the waste stream. And sex toys tend to have a shorter life period as well. So you can imagine that 108,000 tons of plastic every year, increasing every year, going straight into landfill, into the oceans. Um, it represents quite a major a quite a major problem. And it's one that I think now with the size of the industry, we need to tackle it now, or at least be talking about it now, rather than wait until the industry is doubled in size when the problem is doubled in size. But do you have any suggestion of how to tackle this problem? So for instance, we try to use toys that are uh, less battery operated. We we do offer some as well, but that are more rechargeable because then you don't you don't waste batteries. We try to use toys that have you know packaging that is the least possible packaging, but still that has a good image because that matters in this industry especially. Mm -hmm. But is there any any pointers you could give to brands that they could do to improve their um, green footprint? Yeah, there's a few. Uh... It's interesting that you that you raise batteries. Um, so I'll talk about that for a moment because that's a particularly interesting one that people overlook. Every single motorized or, or powered sex toy pleasure product, um, whether it's rechargeable or not, requires a battery. Mm -hmm. And that battery requires usually lithium, which has to be mined. So even a rechargeable product is it's a great step forward and it is hugely valuable and powerful to be able to be reusing that technology, but there is still a debt owed to the planet. When you use any kind of electrical device, unless it's perhaps solar powered or clockwork or something, a clockwork sex toy, that's, I can write that one down. <laughs> you have to be in the balcony to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like the sound of that. It's very glamorous. And it's going to be more used in Africa than in, in Europe. Oh, for sure. Whether It's certainly not here in Berlin where it's <laughs> raining every day. <laughs> I recently worked on a product. I wasn't involved in the development, so I can't claim any credit for that, but I worked on the, on the communications around it. We'd made it, I'll say it bluntly, it is the most uh, future-facing pleasure product ever. It is fully sustainable and renewable, but it still relied on this battery. That was still a compromise we had to make. So we decided that if we're going to take from the planet in order to get this product out to people, uh, we should give something back. So for every product that we sell, we plant a tree. We have an, we have an arrangement with a, a company also based here in Berlin called One Tree Planted who take a, a donation of every single product sold, and that goes directly to a tree being planted. 
it's not a perfect balance. It doesn't completely offset the depth of the footprint, you know, but it's a gesture at least in the, in the right direction. I would also consider advising manufacturers to look very closely about what they consider necessary in a feature for a product of this nature. So for example, it's usually very important or at least a, a nice extra for a customer if a product is waterproof mm-hmm. and submersible. And therefore, because there's a demand for it, most premium, at least most quality sex toys are waterproofed. But waterproofing a sex toy involves using a plastic-based glue. It's very, it's not socially responsible to produce. It leaves an imprint, it leaves an impact. I would suggest to manufacturers at least to consider how necessary a sex toy needs to be waterproof down to three meters of depth. I mean, <laughs> what scuba divers are, are <laughs> masturbating on coral reefs, you know? <laughs> it's not, it's some, some things are excellent luxuries, but not also not always necessary. And if there are ways to create the same level of quality without to, to do it more res- responsibly, there are ways to do it more responsibly. Is the point. It's the same even with freight. Sea freight is more environmentally friendly than air freight. It's still not perfect, but if you're shipping things and you have long lead times, then consider sea freight over air freight. It's just another way to reduce the impact of the industry. Sometimes it's in the details, right? Exactly, yeah. Sometimes it's just logistics. That's what yeah. it comes down to. Can you share the name of the brand that you were talking about? We always love to know yeah. brands that are very um, aware of these issues. Yeah, okay. So the, the brand of that is called Womanizer, and the mm. product is the Premium Eco. Well, the most astonishing thing about this is that the commitment to reduce plastic was really what drove the, um, the thinking behind the product and all of its innovation. And the end result was that we stripped out almost all of the plastic of a product. And most sex toys that have a plastic body with maybe some silicone um, electronics and, and suction cups and that kind of thing. But in this case, we worked with a, a university here in Germany to produce an entirely new material. It's a biopolymer, a bioplastic called BioLean. And instead of being fossil fuel-based, like a conventional plastic, like ABS plastic, uh, it's based on cornstarch. Cornstarch, like it's completely renewable. And if I didn't tell you that it was not ABS plastic, you just wouldn't notice the difference. Of course, because it's made from cornstarch, it's not just renewable, but also biodegrades. Once you've, in the right conditions, it can't be, it's not going to degrade at home. It has to be uh, industrially um, composted, but it will break down in time and therefore returns, not to sound too poetic, but returns to the earth. <laughs> <laughs> so just before everybody starts being very uh, down and thinking, oh my gosh, I can't use a sex toy, you know, what's going to happen now? Um, because that's not what we want. How do you think that people can also look for when buying a product to make sure that, yes, they still get a really good quality product, but that's still sustainable and that they don't really have to stop using a sex toy. Yeah, well, that's really key. Uh, Central to all of this is a well-informed customer. Half of the the problems, the issues that I'm, I'm touching on here, it's not necessarily the production 
of them that's the problem. Of course, that is a problem, unregulated manufacturing and stuff that's all very, very toxic. But that's still driven by demand. Okay, you can't regulate out the destructive nature of processing fossil fuels. If you're working, if you're producing plastics, there's only so much that you can regulate. At the end of the day, you're still working with plastics. So an informed customer base uh, willing to engage with the subject and to seek out advice and seek out brands who are doing this quite well, that's what's going to show that there is a demand for this. uh, There is a demand for sustainable pleasure and an understanding that an orgasm shouldn't cost the earth. And that will drive change throughout the industry. So to answer your question, it's kind of a little bit on the customer (laughs) to be willing to engage with topics that, because no one, no one's thinking about sustainability in the throes of orgasm, you know, and no one should ever feel shame or guilt about the pleasure that they're feeling. It's not on anyone's mind. Sustainability is the very last thing on your mind when you're enjoying your own body. But some savvy shopping is the best way to combat this, I think. As a consumer, it's important to speak to shop staff. If you're shopping in a bricks and mortar store, the shop staff are always excellent, um, always very, very well informed. So ask them, just go in and say, what is your favorite brand? What brand's doing well in this arena? They will be happy, I'm sure, to direct you towards products which are which are doing well. It's also important to look out for when brands are posturing, which is also a problem where a brand will position products as body safe and therefore environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. Those two things aren't always the same. Yeah. And be be suspicious, you know, be skeptical of brands' claims. If the for example, one one very difficult one that's hard to deal with that's never been really well resolved is whether sex toys are vegan friendly. You have to be really, really sure to if you're going to make the claim that your product is vegan friendly because, for instance, some silicones have, in the long and distant past, had the materials tested on animals and that kind of thing. So is it really vegan friendly? Shop staff will tell you directly whether they are or not. Um, and that's stuff, if you're shopping in the West, like in the Western world, that stuff isn't so much a consideration anymore. Stuff has it's much better than it used to be. But it's still good to be wary. Of course. Of course. And thank you so much for the, for those tips. So don't stop enjoying your pleasure. Just uh, be more wary about what you're buying and look out for what you want. So a really good product that is more, at least more sustainable than the one next to it. I want to talk now a little bit about marketing and how that actually influences sexuality. So that's part of your job, not not to influence sexuality, but to market uh, products and brands from the sexual wellness industry. But do you think that the way that these companies and brands market their products actually influences the way that sexuality is viewed and perceived? I think so. Yeah, I think that in most of the walks, most walks of life, marketing has crept into all of our decision making and influences all of our consumption and our interactions. Life does imitate art as much as art imitates life, which means that the communications being put out by marketers have real world impact. With the pleasure and wellness industries, it comes with a particular kind of responsibility because the products that we're offering are designed 
and inherently personal. They have an, they're designed for personal use, and therefore, customers have an inherently personal relationship with them. So the things that we're saying to these customers are taken personally. It's not like we're not like um, we're not selling we're not selling refrigerators. You know, we're not selling doorknobs. We're selling things that people will put in, into and onto their bodies, and therefore, so does our communication. So does our marketing get wrapped up in. Sometimes that's positive. Sometimes I think marketing has the power to to make positive change. And to to and to kind of corral people in very healthy directions, but there are plenty of examples, particularly in the wild west of the adult industry, where that influence is used negatively. And I, I would say, just um, well, perhaps you might like to. Like, what do you um, can you think of any really good examples of marketing impacts or any negative examples? For me, there are Lelo's uh, adverts are absolutely amazing because the way that they mix everyday products like a cake or stairs or whatever, and then they mix that with sexuality. For me, it's genius because sex is a part of life and it's a part of your everyday life. But then again, a lot of people are made to believe that they they can talk about it. So they, they do it in such a sublime way that I think it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think it's it's almost important to make it beautiful, you know, to make it attractive, to to make the sense of a product bigger than the product itself, so that people are attracted not just to the physical object that you hold in your hand, but the kind of much more conceptual and abstract benefits of owning and using a product. I always like to think that owning a sex toy is so much more than owning a lump of silicone and plastic or whatever. It's, it's a real statement about yourself. And buying a sex toy is an investment in yourself. And I think that's a really powerful and empowering act. Buying a sex toy is, a, is saying yes to your own desire. And I think that's really, really exciting. And that's why I love the industry so much is because we, we allow that. We kind of uh, facilitate that. But to do so responsibly, is not easy and we have for example um at the moment um even really good brands even brands worthy of respect and who are fighting the good fight get it wrong sometimes so like um, a misplaced pronoun for example might just be a, a typo to the copywriter who produced it but to someone with a vested interest in their identity to have a company as personal as a sex toy industry use the wrong pronoun for them is suddenly far more harmful and, uh, and dangerous than it would be for a fridge company or a TV company or something. Um, so the, the fact that the industry is being taken seriously now offers an opportunity for us to take the customer seriously too, I think is the point. Yeah, you know, when you talked about pronouns, that's something that I think for me, that's one of the most difficult things is to make sure that I don't get pronouns wrong, especially because I'm not English. So it's not my first language. And second, because pronouns still put people in boxes. And I believe that a lot of people don't want to be put in boxes, which is why some of them use uh, they, them as a pronoun. But it's really hard for brands 
or a marketing campaign to use correctly, make sure you're not offending someone, right? Like you were saying, if you're a fridge company, people are not going to feel offended. They might say, okay, they don't understand anything about us or humans, but whatever, you know, they're selling a fridge. But if you're talking about sexuality and you get it wrong, then it's like a huge hassle. And, 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 and I understand that you're offending people. Yeah, but it's not that difficult is, is the thing. Like the, the, the pronoun issue, well, perhaps for, it's easy for me to say that as a native English speaker, because I, I'm aware, like having a couple of languages myself, that I can only speak to English. But in English, it is really easy. We, we do it all the time and we, we talk around pronouns when we're not sure of the gender identity of the person we're talking about. We just do it all the time. So the transition to being more respectful of pronouns is quite easy in English. At, at this stage, I think that if you're getting it wrong, it's becoming less and less excusable. Let's put it that way. I had, um, uh, it was my mother's birthday the other day, and I bought her a card online from uh, just a generic card retailer. And they sent me back an email to ask how my mother's birthday was. And the subject line of it was, we hope your mother enjoyed their birthday. Huh. And I was like, that's just so simple. You know, it's just so easy to do. And when you get it right, the people who notice that you've got it right notice. And the people who don't care about such things don't notice. Like there's no, there's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no downside to doing it like that. You know, it's, it's, it works out for everybody. That's amazing. And yes, I agree that in English, it's much easier. In Portuguese, for example, the word thank you changes if you identify with being a female or being a male. So it's very hard for you have to guess because all of, when I mean, thank you, I mean a lot of other words, they have a different termination depending on, I, I don't want to say gender, but in how you identify with or with who you identify with. So uh, yeah, I think in English, it is easier for sure. Yeah. I'm going to have to leave you Portuguese speakers to figure that one out on yourself. I can't really offer, I can't offer much advice on that one. I'm afraid. <laughs> I think it's just being aware. Maybe uh, like I saw, I think it was yesterday that Instagram started adding in a couple of countries. I think the UK is one of the first ones to roll out that you can add your pronouns on your um, profile on Instagram. Yeah. So that's really helpful. And I was thinking, well, should everybody add this? And then I, re I read a comment that really made me, clarify this question and, and the comment said that transvesti usually have or a lot of a lot of times have a problem with other people when they say this is how i identify with so this is my pronoun because cisgender people that you know usually identify with their organs and the way that they feel they don't say what their pronouns should be so it's not something that's normal the, the same way i would say like my name is michaela i can say my pronoun is she her but I usually wouldn't say that because I feel that it's obvious for me. But the fact that I do that, it's actually bad for the rest of people that don't feel like that. Well, for cisgendered people, showing their pronouns in, in a social media profile bio, for example, it's usually a sign that they consider themselves an ally. And that's fine. I, I completely understand that. What I don't understand is the, is the resistance to using people's pronouns when they are stated. Because the way I, um, the way I always think about it is that we, we use substitutes to refer to each other all the time, and we get to choose what they are 
all the time. No one ever questions it. For example, if this was the first time you and I would had ever met in person, and you said, "Hello," uh, let's say let's say your nickname was Mickey, for example, and you said, "Hello, my name is Mickey. Nice to meet you." And I said, "No, your name is Michaela. I'm going to call you Michaela because it's on your birth certificate. Therefore, you are Michaela." You'd think I was crazy. So <laughs> if you tell me that um, your pronouns don't necessarily uh, aren't the ones that you might traditionally expect, all I can do is say, "Yeah, okay, that's fine. It doesn't make it makes no difference to me." But is there a resistance about that? I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a growing upswell, particularly in conservative circles, of considering people who uh, use pronouns other than the ones you would expect them to have been assigned at birth to consider that to think of them as um, I don't know uh, snowflakes. I guess there's no or very lefty liberal. Marxist, culturally Marxist, I think is the fashionable term That's so sad. Uh, at the moment. It just makes no sense to me. It is. It is so sad. So let, let, let's kick it up a notch and get the levels high in terms of excitement. And with that, I want to um, end our podcast with a question that we ask all of our guests. How do you keep your relationship, and if you're not in a relationship, it can be any other relationship that you have been, open, exciting, and fun? It sounds like a really boring answer, but I really like talking to my partner just all the time. So I think that keeping it exciting is about not necessarily plotting and structuring when to be excited together, but to just be excited to be in each other's company, to enjoy each other. That's how we keep it fun. We enjoy each other's company. I love that answer. Stu, where can everybody find you? Usually on Twitter. I'm on Twitter as exfututus at the moment. That's E-X-F-U-T-U-T-U-S. I deliberately keep it difficult because I'm very bad at marketing myself. <laughs> um, uh, I'm there on Instagram to uh, just search my name, Stu Nugent. Uh, you'll find me somewhere. Very cool. So Stu has some very funny videos of uh, putting sex toys in blenders and other videos like that. So uh, please do search for Stu if you want to have a laugh. And if you want to read some really good uh, content as well, especially if you're in marketing like I am, that's a turn on for sure. Uh, thank you so much, Stu. It's been a pleasure having you with us. It's been great. Thank you so much for your time. And that was Intimacy Play. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about Pleasy and how we can take your relationship to the next level, visit pleasyplay.com. Then also make sure to search for Intimacy Play in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Pleasy, thank you for listening.